8, uh, go ahead and open your Bible to that passage, if you would, for Samuel 18. The boys made fun of me last week for preaching too short of a sermon, so I've got like 20 extra minutes this week, so we got a lot of work to do, so you guys, uh, you guys hang on. I mean, right, what a, what a compliment. The sermon was too short. Love it. All right, so, so we're going uh, to run this morning. Uh, I want to do a commercial spotlight before we, we start. Next week, we kick off a new round of core classes for the summer, uh, though it's not really summer yet. It's kind of summer, so we're going to go ahead and boot up uh, the next core classes. Just this one's primarily for your information. But during this, uh, this worship hour, there'll be a class on the Psalms. Uh, Rodney's going to teach that class down in the multi-purpose room. And that will be the singular core class during the 9 a.m. hour. For you that attend 9 a.m., there are two and a half classes that are going to be offered uh, in the 11 o'clock hour. If you're new to CFC, this is kind of our version of Sunday school. Uh, it's not divided by age. Uh, you just kind of pick a topic of interest to you. So there's, there's two topics. One, Hugh's going to lead a preaching and teaching lab. This is for men and women uh, who are desiring to grow in their capacity to teach and communicate the scriptures to others. It could be behind a pulpit, uh, in your small group setting, in a classroom setting. So we're gonna, just going to practice the skills. You'll have some opportunity to get some reps teaching. We've got some of our pastors that are going to be there to give feedback. So this is to help us all grow. And then the kind of catch-all class is discipleship in a digital age. This catch-all because we all live in a digital age. So even if you're, uh, this could be for parents engaging with kids. It could be for you that find yourself too attached to your phone uh, than you might uh, like. Uh, Donnie and company are going to lead that class on discipleship in a digital age. And then I said two and a half because Josh Trainer is going to lead an evangelism workshop for the first three weeks during the 11 a.m. hour. So next week, 7, 14, 21, there'll be an, uh, an evangelism workshop designed to help us grow in sharing the gospel with others. And then you can uh, uh, kind of, you know, filter in to one of those other two classes. Okay, so those will start next week. Look online for any information. And now that the commercial is over, let's pray and uh, we'll turn our attention to the scriptures. Father, we thank you for an abundance of wealth that you have given to our church. Um, We thank you um, for the financial resources, certainly, but uh, more importantly, for the abundance of opportunity we have to think about you, to engage with your word, to be around people who love you and want to follow you. Um, We pray that you would protect us from being people who starve at the feast of abundance. Uh, Pray that you would help us to lean into the opportunities that are before us, that we would grow and mature in following you. And we ask that for this morning. We know that with anything that becomes habitual for us, the temptation is to go on autopilot on Sunday mornings. So we pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, that you would provoke us this morning uh, to think and apply the truth of your scriptures to our lives. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, First Samuel 18, uh, big gap. Probably the, um, the two places it happens, high school graduation um, or maybe at your wedding. Um, and then this long gap until funeral. Um, somebody stands before a group of people and says nice things about you, recounting the defining marks of your life. 
graduations or weddings, uh, people describe these kind of like uh, 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 basic virtues that you're seeming to demonstrate and to the young 18-year-old say, continue on that trajectory and life's going to work out for you. At the obituary, at the, the end, someone standing over a tomb or a, uh, I'm sorry, a casket or a set of flowers and says uh, the traits that seem to define you for the 50, 60 some odd years of your life. And in so doing, they commend those who are listening to them to follow the character or maturity or integrity of the individual that's being described. What we want people to think or say about us in that moment, standing over flowers or a casket, is defined in our adult years, the years that most of you are living currently. We are, in a very real way, writing our obituary. And of the scores of traits that we could list that we would want people to say about us at that moment, there's one that seems to top the list. It's not our character necessarily. It's not our wisdom. It's not the things that we've done in our lives, the things we've attempted to do to make the world a better place. But there's one trait that's at the pinnacle of a life, of, of the mountain of a life well lived. And the Apostle Paul summarizes that character trait in perhaps the most familiar chapter in all the scriptures. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and I give my body in order to boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, it's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. Love's fi love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the pinnacle of a life well lived. It is the one word obituary that we would all like to be written about us. He or she was a man marked by love or woman. Conversely, hatred, strife, dissension, envy are the marks of a life we would want to avoid. Paul writes this as well, um, not as a, in those full chapter forms, but it's littered throughout his writing here from Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, and all malice. 
Think about the list of uh, Galatians 5. Remember the fruits of the Spirit, and right before them, we've got the fruits of unrighteousness. After we get past um, sexual immorality, note how many of those are directed relationally. Here's the list. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, or envy. So a life well lived is marked by love. The life we want to avoid is marked by relational strife, conflict, hatred. Our story this morning and the trajectory of the next several scenes in the King's Saga gives us a front row seat to contrast a life of love versus a life of hatred. And as we're doing, it holds up a mirror for us to say, am I writing the type of obituary that I can be proud of? Is my life defined by love? As we enter uh, the scene, David is just entering the ranks of the kings. Saul is departing. David's star is rising after the Goliath episode. Saul's is falling and falling hard. David's defines the trajectory of the life we would like to emulate. Saul's the life we would like to avoid. So I'm going to set up this morning's outline as a chart, comparing and contrasting the way of love and the way of hate. The way of love and the way of hate from 1 Samuel 18. We begin in verse 1. David had just finished speaking with Saul, and Jonathan was bound to him in close friendship. He loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on, did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. So the question is, what would happen right after the Goliath episode? I mean, that's a tough act to follow, right? The next few chapters are not Goliath-like at all. In fact, they're relational and orientation primarily. Don't have the big pop that the Goliath story does. But this is good and encouraging for us because this is where life is lived. Most of the lives that we live are not defined by Goliath-like episodes, but they're defined by the ebb and flow of human relationships. And we should expect nothing less from these human kings. David is introduced after the Goliath episode as one first that is surrounded by godly relationships. Surrounded by God-honoring relationships. You might remember we've had Jonathan presented to us as a character through this study. He's, um, he's been kind of the anti-Saul before David shows up on the scene. He's the one who does what Saul is unwilling to do. He can't eradicate all the Philistines, but he does take on some. He trusts God for success. He's willing to go to the battle lines to defend God's honor. In many ways, he's David before David. Uh, he steps up against the Philistines and fights against the enemies. Not of a Goliath-like magnitude, but nonetheless. And now these two peas in a pod are united in friendship. They're connected in this covenantal bond that is going to play heavily in the rest of 1 Samuel. The relationship between David and Jonathan, their friendship, and the way that Jonathan is going to advocate for David is going to be huge. While some see these first few verses as promoting some type of sexual sin or rebellion, some would like to posture this text as advocating for a romantic relationship between these two. There's nothing in the passage that suggests that to be the case. David and Jonathan love one another. 
and they pledge to aid one another in the work that's ahead. This is what's playing out in verse 3. We're not told the context of the covenant that they make with one another, but it's some sense of a commitment to have each other's backs, to fight on each other's behalf. And David will soon be incredibly grateful for this pledge from Jonathan. He's going to protect David from Jonathan's raging father, King Saul. Remember earlier that no one in Israel had weapons except for Saul and Jonathan. So here in verse 4, Jonathan is gracious to David. He gives him his sword, his bow, and his belt. In other words, he surrenders leadership to David as the future king of the nation. And this is a worthy contrast right at the start. David esteems the rightful king and Saul hates him. Last week we commented that the waters die down to allow us to see Jesus and the story of David and Goliath. Here is a worthy uh, point of application for us because people today make those same two choices in looking at Jesus. They either esteem the rightful king or hate him. Jonathan divests himself. Saul continually exalts himself. Twice the text tells us that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. So first point of application. Could anybody else say that about you? Can the same be said for you? Is there anyone in your relational orbit that would say that person loves me as much as they love themselves. To, to give street cred even a bit more, could your spouse even say that about you? A way to know is verse 4. Are there those in your relational sphere that you're sacrificing for? Are there people for whom you are laying down your life in order to see them exalted? If so, it could, in fact, be that you're writing love into your obituary. Idea number two, they surround themselves with godly relationships. Number two, they, they bring joy to others. They've got the right people in their orbit, and those that are in their orbit actually enjoy that orbit. They, they bring joy to those who are close. Notice in verse 5, and following. David marched out against the army. He was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men. And then notice this phrase, which pleased all the people. And it pleased Saul's servants as well. What a comment. They're put under David's authority and they actually like that. It's a good thing. And as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from the cities to meet Saul, singing and dancing with shouts of joy and with three-stringed instruments. What's interesting to me about 1 Samuel 18 is we've read nothing that rivals this about King Saul. Think back about it. Those of you that have been with us through this series, there's not even a verse that hints at anything like this about King Saul. These terms are never used to speak of the king. No one's loving him. No one's adoring him. No one's giving him praise. No one's excited under his leadership. People uh, speak of David in these glowing terms. He's successful. He's adored. And it makes sense. He's taken down a giant. And now he's continuing to step into leadership of the people. 
Saul's put in charge of the fighting men. They're happy about this. The women of the city are celebrating David in full view of those in the city. This chapter could, could, could rightly be said to be the 1 Corinthians 13, the 1 Samuel. It's the chapter of love. It's mentioned six times in the text that somebody loves and David is always the object. They love David. They're, they're pleased with David. Those walking in the way of love have the unique ability to foster love in others. When love walks into the room, others get better. Can the same be said for you? Those under your influence, in your home, your family, in the church, in your workplace, are others glad when you show up? With this type of language, joy, love, does it follow you around? And here the passage moves back and forth between David and Saul. And it actually supplies a really good contrast for us. We get to see the two figures. So love and joy are kind of David's shadow. What's Saul's shadow? It's, it's hate. It's envy. It's jealousy. So remember verse 7. They danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained. They only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from this day forward. Now, almost certainly these songs are not intended to be digs at Saul. They're celebration songs, and they're rightfully celebrating. This is a joyous occasion when Goliath goes down. The Philistine camp, there's some long-awaited peace. But here, and I mentioned this contrast last week, uh, uh, Saul is the, the older brother of the prodigal son story. He's pouting on the fence post while everybody else is partying. Rather than finding joy in God's protection and deliverance, he's looking out for number one. So this would be the first characteristic. Cares only about self. The way of love Surrounded by godly relationships, creating joy, bringing joy to others. In contrast, those on the way of hate care only about themselves. And there is a way that we would hear these songs and, and they get under your skin, right? Particularly if you were easily provoked. You're a kind of good king, but there's like a really, really, really great king, right? You can imagine Saul sitting in his lazy boy throne, ruminating about this. The line getting stuck in his head, his tens of thousands. Just who does this guy think he is? And I think it's an important note about this. It doesn't, at least from the text itself, we're not even told that this has actually happened. Like that David has killed tens of thousands at this point. They're noting the trajectory of David's life. It's a gesture meant to highlight hope. Here's one who can lead us into victory, who can eradicate the foes. This is how the people feel, but not Saul. And as a result, we're introduced to the trait that will define Saul's life. It will be his one word obituary, and it is jealousy. He is a king who is jealous. Jealous of anyone 
who is promoted other than himself. They only credited me with thousands. Saul cares here only about himself. Think of, think of the things Saul could celebrate at this point. I mean, things are going well for the nation that he's supposed to be leading. The Philistines are actually suffering at this point. That hasn't happened consistently under his reign. Uh, he could celebrate the kingdom. I mean, after all, the people in his palace, uh, things are going well for them. They're not being decimated or destroyed. His commanders in the field, things are going well for them. He could even, if he were a humble dude, he could celebrate David. After all, what a great opportunity as an aging leader to see someone step into the spotlight and kill Goliath. And if he were a wise man, he could celebrate God. After all, we're seeing the hand of God deliver the people and do remarkable things. But Saul could care less about the nation, the kingdom, David, or God. His care is about himself. He's looking out for himself and down on everyone else. He's unwilling to celebrate the good of another if it comes at a cost to himself. How unlike Jesus, the one who gave himself at great cost for us, such that we might receive a reward that we did not deserve. Those who follow this pattern renounce self-love, divest themselves of position and prominence, and give of themselves for the sake of others. Can the same be said of you? Would those looking on your life say, he or she only cares about himself? Paul chastises the Corinthian church these ways, noting that jealousy and envy are marks of worldliness. 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You're still worldly. There's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? In other words, this type of self-protection, self-care, jealousy is a mark of worldliness, is a mark of mere humans. Supernatural people give of themselves in love to others. The author of Hebrews warns, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up in you causing trouble and defiling many. There's a warning here. Supernatural people of God are renouncing self-love, are renouncing bitterness, envy, and jealousy. Notice the contrast. The way of love magnetizes. The way of hate isolates. In other words... You can tell a lot about the path that you're walking, the way of love or the way of hate, by looking to your right and left and seeing who's around you. Are you magnetizing the right people to you? Or are you, because you only care about yourself, stiff-arming anybody that tries to get close? Friends, as adults, this is the counsel we give to our teenagers that we need to apply to ourselves. Those marked by hate seek opportunities to cause harm. 
They seek opportunities to cause harm. Because they care about themselves, they seek opportunities to bring harm to others. The next day, an evil spirit from God came powerfully upon Saul. He began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear and he threw it thinking, I'll pin David to the wall, but David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Therefore, Saul sent David away from him and made him commander over a thousand men. Now, this isn't like the, the dance party version of rave that's going on here. This is like dude going crazy version of rave. Okay, maybe that's where we get the term. Uh, the music that was once bringing comfort is now inducing anger. And so Saul attacks, flings a spear. This won't be the last time uh, this happens. And then he sends David out to the front lines of battle. Now, this shouldn't be read as a prize here. Um, it should be read as a parallel to what David will soon do to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Sending him to the front lines of battle because it says twice, verse 17, then again, verse 25. Saul's looking for the Philistines to eradicate David. They want him to kill him. They want the Philistines to kill David, and then it doesn't look like the blood's on Saul's hand. So he just sends him out to the front lines, take him, take him out. Here again is a surefire tool to assess the path that we're on. Those on the path of hate aren't content to isolate themselves from others, but they also seek to bring harm to those from whom they isolate. Those drowning in the sea of ungodliness lurch at those bringing life-saving help and take them to the bottom as well. They seek opportunities to bring others down, particularly others who are walking the way of faithfulness. Can the same be said of you? Do those who get close to you get better or worse by virtue of their proximity to you? This is a primary reason that unity or the lack thereof is a common point of New Testament discussion of Christian ethics. Those on the way of hate look for ways to bring others down, especially in the church. And that is why far too often you walk into churches that are filled with factions and envy and jealousy and dissension. Churches that split after split after split after split because people are acting carnal and worldly. It's one of the things I'm most proud of about our church is that is not a defining characteristic of the people of God here. They feel threatened, so they seek to, 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 to do harm rather than bending their lives in conformity to God's word. They seek to bring others down to their level. Okay, thirdfold division here. David led the troops, verse 14. He continued to be successful in his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David had been very successful, he dreaded him. But notice verse 15. That's the only person in this passage that's mentioned as not liking David. Saul dreads him. Okay. But all Israel and Judah loved David. All Israel and Judah. Because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, here's my oldest daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Then David responded, Who am I and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So let's do the contrast here. Those marked by love are, are powered by God's presence. 
They're powered by God's presence. Four times in the text, the repetition is used that David was very successful. We'll get it multiple times in what we just read. But here we get a because statement. Why was David successful? Not his power, not his might, but three, three repetitions. Verse 12, let, let your eyes rest on the text here because this is an important idea. Why, verse 12, what does Saul notice about David? What is characteristic of his life? Why is he afraid? Not because David's powerful, but notice verse 12, because the Lord was with David, but it left Saul. Then look in verse 14, what we just read. David led the troops. He continued to be successful in all his activities. Why? What's the because clause here? Because the Lord was with him. Then look down in verse 28. Saul realized what? That the Lord was with David. The presence of the Lord's hand of favor is the defining characteristic of David's reign. Here it protects David from an early death. And it allows David to persevere in the face of such opposition. I mean, after all, David hasn't exactly been clamoring for the role of king. He's not like showing up, hey, promote me. He could have easily said, this is too much. I mean, crazy king throwing spears at me? I'm, a, I'm out, man. Who wants this? So what kept him in the game? What kept him engaged in the work? And what elevated him? What made him successful? It was the presence of the Lord. And here we're entering the portion where these stories get really fun because we can begin to overlay them with the Psalms. The Psalms don't, um, they're not all time stamped for us. Some of them are. But we can assume some of the context in, the, in, in the, the various Psalms. So, for example, read Psalm 27 in light of this passage. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumble and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked for one thing from the Lord. It's what I desire. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Space as it permits, so perhaps this afternoon, continue to read the rest of Psalm 27 and note the number of times that David's trust is the hand of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Those on the way of love are powered by God's presence. Can the same be said for you? If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are saying that God's powerful spirit is at the helm of your life. God is leading. And if God is leading you, then you are powered by the most consistent, faithful, persevering, long-suffering, loving God in the universe, the singular God of all things. Look no further than the true King, Christ Jesus, who powered by the presence of God embodied the way of love and pledged his spirit to help those who would follow on that path. So friends, those on the way of love, is the presence of God, the hand of God's favor, the defining characteristic of your life? 
If not, you'll do the opposite. And this is idea number three, the way of hate. You'll manipulate, lie, and distort. You'll manipulate, lie, and distort. In contrast, David's elevation is based on, the, on humble reliance on God's presence. Saul attempts to manipulate the outcomes to get what he wants. I'll pull David close. I'll give him a wife. And in so doing, I'll bring him close. This will allow me to appoint him to these positions and the Philistines can take him out. So notice in verse 19 that he offers wife number one and then reneges on that offer. The text doesn't tell us why. But he gives uh, one, then pulls it back. He's twisting, he's distorting. The hand of God isn't with Saul, the text tells us explicitly. So he attempts to twist circumstances to remain in control. And isn't this how most of us hate? I mean, most of us are not throwing spears and pinning people against the wall, are we? I sure hope not. If you are, come talk to me afterwards, all right? <laughs> but what do we do? We manipulate. We lie. We distort. We use our words to bring others down. We attempt to manufacture control of circumstances. We want to make ourselves look better and others look worse. We angle facts to promote our self-interest. We hedge we hide. Not those marked by love. They're content with the presence of God. Lastly, those marked by love stay low. Those marked by love stay low. Verse 20, Saul's daughter Michael loved David. Was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him. The hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, you can now be my son-in-law. Saul then ordered his servants, speak to David in private. Tell him, look, the king is pleased with you and with all his servants. Therefore, you should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor commoner. Three times in the passage, people go and beg David to take the woman and become the king's son-in-law. Who doesn't want that? This is a good gig. The king is giving you his daughter's hand in marriage. He's elevating you to a position of power. He's pulling you close. The servants have to go and beg David to do this. But David says twice in the passage, in verses 17 and 18 earlier, and here again in verse 23, who am I? I'm just a poor commoner. Now, objectively that might be true, but, but it's a bit of a stretch for the dude that just killed Goliath, right? I'm a poor commoner? This is one who, if he wanted could flaunt his prominence and elevate himself. There'd already been a promise of a princess to anyone who could defeat the giant. And even if you weren't getting a princess as a prize, uh, you're not exactly walking in the shadows when you've got Goliath's head in your hands. You could be a hero. And David is content to not jockey for position or elevate himself but to trust in God to elevate him in due time. He doesn't flaunt his power. He stays low. Staying low, don't misunderstand my term, it doesn't mean staying hidden. One can actually lead and remain low. 
David doesn't jockey for position. He doesn't try to get ahead. He remains submissive to the invisible hand of God's providence. Can the same be said of you? In contrast, verse 24, the servants reported back to Saul, these are the words that David spoke. And Saul replied, say this to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on the enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hand of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as a payment to the king to become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael to David as his wife. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and his daughter loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Last idea, the way of hate creates enemies. It creates enemies. I mean, apart from the middle school awkwardness of this last paragraph, this is just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, Saul sends David out to do an impossible task designed to humiliate and kill him. Here Saul is quite literally creating an enemy. He is building a context for frustration and failure. And friends, how often is this true of us? It is hopefully not uh, uh, intimate parts of Philistines that we're promoting here. But the same is too often said of us. Creating enemies in our marriage, in our parenting, in our love for the church, and in our investment in human relationships, rather than, notice this contrast, rather than leveraging your strength to help others win, we put people in positions designed to cause them to fail. Rather than leveraging our strength to put people in positions that cause them to thrive, those on the way of hate use their strength to put people in positions that are designed to crush them. But David does it. I mean, it's a chuckle here that's like, oh yeah, that's the thing that pleased me to now become the king's son-in-law. Got a price to pay. And David does it, and he two times it here in the text. So what Saul has said to do, I'm going to bring 200 back. He supplied double the tally in faithfulness. In verse 30, every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. Notice, the one who's attempting to protect his name is lowered. And the one who is content to trust the powerful presence of God to elevate his name is given a name. This is Genesis 11 and 12 rewritten. The Tower of Babel, people wanting to make a name for themselves that get decimated. Uh, Genesis 12, what does God sees Abram and what does he promise to Abram and his descendants? I'm going to make a name for you. The powerful hand of God decimates those who attempt to make a name for themselves and elevates those who are content to allow God to make a name for them. This is what the text does. 
David is exalted, not by his effort, but through God's faithfulness. And in this way, David's elevation is akin to the path of the perfecter of love, Jesus Christ. The one who walked the way of love fully and completely. So that those who are naturally bent towards hatred might give themselves to the way of love. By placing our eyes on the one who embodied the first category, those who are powered by the Spirit of God can progressively and incrementally see the Spirit of God move them from the path of hatred to the way of love. And this is what this table holds out for us. A steady reminder of the author and perfecter of love, who for people bent on bitterness and hatred, willingly laid aside his life, such that you could receive a prize that you did not earn. This morning, let's take a couple of minutes to reflect on the path that we are currently walking to allow the mirror of the word of God to shine bright in our own lives, to celebrate the work of Christ. I'm going to invite the servers to go ahead and come and begin to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as they do, and as you are privately reflecting, spend time praying, and then we'll receive the elements of the Lord's Supper together in just a moment.